0: So today we are this is this little five-verse section. is the very last part of the first vision sequence in the book of Revelation, this big, confusing book that, that can be uh, so ominous and difficult to think about with all the intersecting parts and the way it works. And today, uh, today we are at the last closing verses of the first sections, the, the seal judgments. This is the last part of the seventh seal before we move into the next section of the book. And so, uh, in it, we are going to see uh, a a dichotomy of silences, how we, in our experience, are are tempted to more and more become silent uh, out of fear, how the world uh, is more and more tempted to believe that God doesn't exist because of His silence, But the reality behind all that, that God is present and there will come a day. There will come a day. And that's what we're going to read about today. So would you please stand if you're able out of respect for the reading of God's word uh, one last time. Revelation uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 5. This is God's inerrant word. And when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and through it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I let me start by reading this quote. This is this is like one of my favorite quotes. I've I've used this a couple times in different ways. It's. Uh, this is a quote from a, a theologian in the 1700s uh, who's uh, bewailing the state of the nation. Usually I read the quote and then I ask people to guess like when was this, you know, what news service was this on this week, but I'm going to tell you right up front, this is from a guy in the 1700s. And listen, just listen to what he says in his, his lament over the state of the world. Uh, here, this is what he says, first. He says, briefly, he's taking a view of the state of our nation with respect to our, the deterioration and the prevailing sin and wickedness in it. Our country not long ago was, was, was renowned for religion and for piety. It was vastly otherwise among our political leaders and our people, among parents and children, both old and young people than it is now. The country is quite another face now, and we have swiftly revolted. And corrupted ourselves more and more. And religion is less and less our business and concern and we care less and less about it. The things of this world just engross our thoughts and concerns and talk of the land, profaneness, pride, sensuality, or the order of the day. And daily they appear more and more openly and barefaced in the public square. And then from there and he goes on to lament just the general neglect of the things of God publicly about rampant materialism and greed. He goes on to uh, uh, lament about open, licentious sexuality among young people and among old people (laughs) and the breakdown of honesty and ethics in business leading to a culture of lawsuits. Now, you can see why it would be really easy to like use that as bait with someone who's especially someone who's like longing for that golden age of Christendom. That, that great day back, back in the day when everyone was Christian and the nation was great and everything was so much better. It's, it, this is a great quote to bust out and to, and to show that in the 1700s, pastors of that day were lamenting about the same stuff that we lament about. And usually when I break that out, it's for that purpose, to say there is no golden age, it's always been rough, every generation of Christians have been the minority, every generation of Christians have been unpopular. We have always been aliens and sojourners in the world, it's never been different. So let's deal with it. Um, however, I was, uh, that's how I usually use it, but I just read this other, another article by C.S. Lewis. He uh, was the last article he ever wrote. So it was, a, it was a letter to the editor, the last article that he published, he died like the day or so after he sent the letter in. And in this letter, he basically says the same thing that this 17th century pastor says again, right? Except as I was comparing it, the things that the 17th century passage, pastor was dealing with were very different from the things that C.S. Lewis was dealing with and talking about. And those things were still very different from the things that we are dealing with in our day and age. And, 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 and when you put all those three things together, yes, it's true that Christians have always been the minority. We've always been aliens and sojourners. Uh, true witness to Jesus has always been unpopular. However, when you put, when you watch that lament throughout the centuries, you can see the trajectory of the decline. That the world that we live in is getting noisier and noisier and busier and more blasphemous as time goes on to where when we look at what the 17th century was dealing with, we can go, wow, I wish we had those problems. But we have to remember that somewhere in the future, if Jesus tarries <laughs> in a couple hundred years, there are going to be people looking back at our time going, wow, Man, they had it really good. (laughs) Wow, they had a culture of holiness and the things of God were honored. Uh, And what does that point out? The point is that the busy, busy, noisy, blasphemous world is getting busier and noisier as time goes on. Uh, And in the midst of that, more and more so every day, it can be really hard as Christians to live in the midst of that noise, and, and especially because you start wondering, where's God? Why isn't God doing anything? Why does God seem to be so silent in the midst of this crazy decline? And when we think those thoughts, when we think those things, God has provided for us the book of Revelation and other passages to point out to us uh, that God has always been God. God has always been present. Uh, he may be silent in some ways now, but there is coming a day. There's coming a day when those tables are going to turn. And those tables are going to turn, the Bible says, in, in an instant, in a moment. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. The tables are going to turn and the world who is mocking and taunting God for being silent is going to all of a sudden be absolutely speechless in the revelation of his presence into the physical world when he breaks into time and history. And that's th- this passage is the picture. It's the beginning. Uh, it's a teaser, really, and I'll explain more about what that means as we go along. But it is a teaser. It's a vision of the very beginning of that reality. When all the world stands silent before God. And so the big, really the big picture, uh, the big idea of this this passage is that the busy, noisy, blasphemous world will be speechless when the prayers of the saints are answered by God in judgment. So let's look at that one part at a time. The busy, noisy, blasphemous world will be speechless uh, I used to, uh, it's hard to believe because I'm 5'8 and I'm 170 pounds, but I used to work as a, as a bouncer at security in clubs. And uh, I, I think my, I, I have a world record. I'm the smallest guy who ever worked the door of a Slayer concert by myself. If I have any claim to fame, I think that's probably it. Uh, however, I, uh, there was one instance in particular when there was a, a rather uh, uh, in, intoxicated man Was with uh, one of one of the guys I worked with, and this guy got in his face and was yelling at him, screaming at him, uh, just saying things, just saying awful and terrible things to him, mocking him, taunting him, uh, profanity the whole nine, trying to trying to taunt this guy into fighting him. He wanted to fight my coworker, uh, and it was, it was crazy. He was saying things that were embarrassing. He was saying things that were just wouldn't, were making everyone angry. They were so awful that you would just n- never say this to another man. Uh, and it was prolonged, and it kept going on, and you could see the crowd of people were like, like, and the other bouncer was just silent. He didn't say a thing. He was just standing there, super calm, while this guy was just screaming and spitting into his face and you could see the crowd around him going why is why is he not doing anything why is he just being why is he just standing there silent not doing anything until and then one of my other coworkers came up and addressed the bouncer by name <laughs> and the guy who was assaulting him recognized the name as a championship MMA fighter all of a sudden recognized his face and the guy who was spouting off with such confidence all of a sudden shut down and was almost stammering and was completely silent. Dead silent. And at that point, co-worker MMA champion calmly spoke to this man and removed him from the building. It's almost a perfect picture of the world around us. People are just becoming more and more bold, the, the blasphemous stuff you, they, people talk about. Last week I talked about my friend who, like, said that crazy blasphemous, you know, statement about how he just wasn't impressed with the cross of Jesus at all, you know. And I, I pretended, like, to back away, you know, because you're afraid he's going to get struck by lightning, you know. But the, the reality is you know he's not going to get struck by lightning. He's going to say that stuff. And nothing's going to happen. And, you're, and in the midst of that as Christians, we can be like, why? What is God doing? How is it that people can say that stuff? And, the, and sometimes it's not just embarrassing or cringeworthy stuff. Sometimes it's stuff that really, really makes you angry. I had, I was listening, uh, uh, read a post yesterday, a friend of a friend put up. Talking about uh, talking about there was really no difference between regular child abuse uh, and the current trend of, of 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 taking kids who are unsure about their gender and 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 doing surgery on them, genital mutilation on kids, and somebody commented in that thread. They said, this, expo- this, belief- this shows how you just have no understanding of the extended protection that, that medical professionals have with kids in that spot. And it just made my blood boil. I was thinking, how, what kind of protection could there be in the, in, in the act of mutilating kids? How could that, how could our culture have gotten to the point where people who 10 years ago, the very same people who were building awareness about female circumcision and genital mutilation in Africa are now advocating the same things for American kids who are not old enough to make that kind of decision. It just makes your blood boil. How can the culture have gotten that bad? How can people, regular people, be endorsing that and encouraging it and advocating for that and putting those kids in that position. Where is God? Why is he silent in the midst of that? How could things have just gotten so crazy bad and how can it be that Christians are demonized in culture for standing up against stuff like that? Silence. Silence. There's a whole movie about it, a movie, Silence. Martin Scorsese made a movie about Japanese novel, Silence, about a a persecution in in Japanese history that was so bad, the church had flourished about 300,000 people, and they were almost all killed. And kind of the underlying theme of the movie is that God's silence, that God's, because God didn't intervene to save his people, that is proof that he must not exist, kind of the underlying theme, is how can you even, how can we, how can we believe in a God who would allow His people to suffer that deeply? It must mean that He doesn't exist. And so the world is becoming more and more confident that the silence of God means that He's just not there at all. It's just about, uh, more and more people are believing that. Look at, look at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In the book of Revelation, hour is always the times are, are you know, uh, times are used symbolically as well. So hour, the hour, is usually means coming on suddenly, a moment in time, not usually doesn't mean a whole hour. So to say for about a half an hour is to emphasize the suddenness in which this occurs. And the silence uh, throughout the Old Testament is characterized with the coming of God's judgment. In the coming of God's judgment or when God's majesty or God's holiness is recognized by the people, it causes everyone to, not to scream, not to wail, but to be completely speechless and so, this is a picture of, of the measured wrath of the first four seals that God is pouring out upon the earth to bring repentance. That time has now come to an end. The four horsemen are, are this is not the four horsemen, this is, the four horsemen were measured wrath. God orchestrating evil and put, but keeping a lid on it. Uh, for the purpose of bringing people into, re- into repentance. But that time is now over and it is a point in time where this is different. Seal number six is, is a picture of theophany, earthquakes, lightning, thunder. It's always a picture like Mount Sinai, God coming down in judgment with the law. And verse seven uh, is, the exempt, is, is, is different. This is the end. The busy... Noisy, blasphemous world. No screaming, no running, no wailing, no hiding under rocks. None of that. It is, it is in the presence of God's ultimate holiness and majesty. And all people can do is just stand in, in, in terrified silence. Um... That's what that is. Now well, the story of that bouncer that I told you at the beginning is, it's, it's funny because we can see the vantage point. You know, we know, or I knew, you know, the, the people in the crowd were like mystified, like, why is that guy being so quiet? But those of us who knew who the the bouncer was, we were like, oh, this is going to be good. (laughs) And that's kind of the point of the story. You know, the world, you know, as people, the new atheists come out and more and more clever arguments against God are lifted up and people just ignore uh, created order and the truth that's in it to their own destruction. And uh, in the midst of that, if you don't know if you don't know why God is being silent or, or the, that God is still there, you can be tempted to join in with the crowd and be discouraged and be like, why isn't God saying anything? Or Does that mean he's not there? Does it mean he's not there? But knowing this, knowing who God is, uh, we can escape the temptation of of, of, of beginning to believe that maybe God's not there because when we start to believe God's not there, what's the first thing you do? You stop talking to Him. You stop praying. You become silent. And that's not, that's, that is part of the devil's grand plan um, to silence the church, to stop us praying, just to make us believe that God isn't there He is silent, and he will not and does not listen to our prayers. But the truth is, and what this passage teaches us, is that God listens and hears every single whispered prayer that comes from us. And so because of that, we should be encouraged. And so the first encouraging thing is is the prayers of the saints coming before the Lord. Look at verse 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Uh, when I, I, I left home pretty young, my teen years, my family had blown apart after my mom, my mom passed away when I was 15 my dad and me didn't really get along, and I spent 20 years just really angry and resentful at him. And my, my narrative in my mind was that he didn't care about me whenever I needed help. He wasn't there. Uh, that he replaced me with someone else. That he, didn't, he wasn't there. and he didn't care. And then 20 years later, uh, after I had God had pulled me out of the mess that I had made of my life. We were working through some spiritual exercises where you really examine the resentments that you carry through life, and, and in the in the course of that process, <laughs> often you make these startling realizations. And we had ended up calling them pen droppers because they're the moment when you when you examine these resentments and this anger that you've nursed for 20 years and you, rec- you recognize in that minute that it's really not that at all and you drop the pen and start crying. <laughs> That's what we call them, pen droppers. But in the midst of me doing this exercise with my dad, I came to see that he didn't come for every like foolish... <laughs> that I sent myself on to kind of to help me along my foolish way. But I, re- I saw, in, when I really looked at the history, that in every, like, clutch, key moment where I really needed help, he was always there. He'd always showed up. And, like, 20 years of resentment against my dad just kind of melted away as I recognized that, that he was there. He was coming. He was helping me. I mean, my dad had some issues. Human fathers usually do. But he was there. <clears throat> in, in our relationship with God can be the same way. In fact, our, our, our relationship with our human fathers oftentimes colors how we see God. We look at God through the filters of our human fathers, and, and, uh, and in the midst of that, uh, one of life's biggest struggles, we tend to treat God the same way and become resentful and angry at Him because He's not showing up at the times and places that we want Him to in the way that we want, uh, and it seems in the midst of that that we can tell ourselves that God doesn't answer prayer. Uh, he has abandoned us. He is silent, and what does that, what does that mean? This, this picture, listen to this. Let me read this again. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. This is a, a, a picture of the angels being inside the Holy of Holies, the most, the, the, the most sacred place of the temple architecture, but in the, in the heavenly temple, before God, before his throne. <clears throat> and the picture is of that room is literally just full. It is so full of the prayers of the saints that you can't see through the incense and the smoke. God is literally immersed in all of our prayers, breathing them in day and night as they come up before them. But if that's you know if that's true, why, so why do we still feel like that? Why do I still get resentful and angry, at God, for not answering my prayers? If that if that's true, that's what the Bible says is true. Well, there's usual suspects, right? I tend to pray, uh, I tend to pray for things um, that are going to uh, you know weaken me spiritually, distance me from God, and generally endanger me. Those are you know some of my best prayers. And he doesn't answer those. But, um, you know, as opposed to the clutch situation, the prayers that will strengthen me spiritually, that will draw me closer to God, uh, that will generally profit me. If I'm honest and look at that, I can see that God does answer those prayers and continually answers those prayers. But there's another consideration in this context, and and that is this. The big idea of the whole book of Revelation is it's giving us, through visions, the principles, the patterns, and the reality of life in the midst of a spiritual war. Uh, and if we get that, if we the more prosperous we are as people, the more distance that feels to us, and the and the and the more the more different our prayers become from the prayers of the saints that we see in the book. Um, during World War II, the British, during the Battle of Britain, when it looked like it was absolutely just inevitable that the Germans were going to cross the channel and overrun Britain, they, this one major in the, uh, in the army, he started this practice of um, all, all, all people in Britain would pray for one minute at 9 p.m. every night. They called it the silent minute. And in that minute, what did they pray for? They were fervently praying for deliverance from the enemy in the evil age. In that reality, with that pressing uh, threat, their prayers were mostly consumed with, deliver us from this evil, deliver us from this evil age, deliver us from this enemy that's crushing in and oppressing us. They were praying for provision, I'm sure, praying for the necessities of life as well, but they weren't praying as if they were on vacation in a Caribbean uh, vacation spot. They were praying as if they were in a city that was being threatened and overridden by an evil enemy. Uh, Their intense fervent and sustained prayer was for deliverance from evil not for a comfortable existence within the evil. Big difference. And that's what the Lord's prayer teaches us to pray. God, Jesus, taught us how to pray. And when you look at it, right, the first half is what? By kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's calling for deliverance, calling for the forces of heaven to come and invade time and space to save us and deliver us from this evil age. And then the second part is provision, asking for provision in the midst of this wartime, spiritual wartime environment that we're in. And it <sighs> it's when I get on, <laughs> but I don't pray like that. I really don't I don't you know what I do because of the context that we're in what I see I spiritualize the first half when I say thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven I spiritualize that to mean God make Respres a great church that the kingdom of God will come into San Diego because that's what I that's kind of what I want it's kind of like my idol you know. I want to be successful as a church planner. Uh, I spiritualize it. I'm not thinking in my head, God, break into time and space and history and deliver us from this evil age and the oppression that is over us. And then I take the second half, the part where I'm asking, we're asking for provision in the context of wilderness experience, and I kind of prioritize that. God, give us this day our daily bread, which, of course, means... whatever, whatever just popped into your head. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <sighs> I, t- I tend to spiritualize it in my prayers unbalanced. It's not that we shouldn't be praying for necessities and even praying that God would allow us to be comfortable in this age. That's, those are good prayers. But the first priority is that we be praying earnestly and intensely for deliverance from the enemy that is overrunning and oppressing us. That this scene that we see happening in this passage would, ha- would, come, would come to fruition, would happen in history. You know what the, the bigger part of this cloud of prayer immersing the throne of heaven is? that God hears and is about to answer? It's, it's Revelation 6.10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the Revelation saint version of thy kingdom come. That's what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We're joining in with the saints in praying, how long, O Lord? Let your kingdom come. Not, I mean, it's good to be praying, you know, for the gospel to go out, for the church to be protected, and for our spiritual lives to be increased, and for our heart, you know, God, the kingdom to come into our hearts. But ultimately, we are praying earnestly, intensely, and fervently if we understand the context that we're in, which is the purpose of the book of Revelation to teach us the context we're in. We are praying, thy kingdom come like legit. God, break into time and space. Let the elements melt in fervent heat. Let the sky roll up like a scroll. Let the whole world, earth stop in panic silence. Let your judgment come upon the earth and bring us into the new world. That's, that's what the prayer is. And that's the prayer that God is about to answer in the last verse. The prayers of the saints are answered with judgment by the Lord, redemptive judgment by the Lord. The busy, noisy, blasphemous world will be speechless when the prayers of the saints, three, are answered with judgment, redemptive judgment by the Lord. Part of the reason why Revelation is so difficult for us to understand is because it's layer upon layer of Old Testament imagery. Uh, It's difficult for us to understand it as 21st century Westerners because it's not our background in, in context, but it wasn't difficult at all for first century Jews to grasp what was happening here because that was their context, that was their culture. I had a friend, when I was at the, at the Rock Church, I had a friend, who a pastor there who was accepted into a Ph.D. program at a Hebrew university to study Old Testament. And he shows up, he's the only guy in his class that has not memorized the Pentateuch. <laughs> to this day, like this was like 10 years ago, he's the only guy. Everyone else was Jewish, everyone else was Jewish, studying to be rabbis or studying to be uh, professors um, in the Jewish religion, he was one of the few Christians there, or he was the only Christian at that place. The only guy who had not memorized Torah and so having imagine that you imagine that you 've memorized the Torah and you' are so saturated in bible you 're so saturated in the imagery of Leviticus and Exodus and numbers that and then you read this passage, it becomes really clear what 's happening here this is If you were an ancient Hebrew, you would have immediately recognized this scene as the Day of Atonement. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on behalf of Israel. He grabs the golden censer. He takes coals out of the altar. He goes in before the Lord. He pours two handfuls of incense on top of the coals. The smoke rises up before him uh, in in the Holy of Holies. And then he takes the blood of a bull... For his own sins, he sprinkles the blood onto the mercy seat, which was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant held a couple of things. Most important was the broken tablets of the law. Uh, when Moses came down, you know, a fun trivia question, if you're playing Bible trivia, how long did the first covenant last? People say 1,500 years. You could say 15 minutes. God's people broke the covenant. Moses broke the tablets. God restored the covenant. He took the broken tablets. That's in the mercy. That's in the in the in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. So the high priest comes in. He sprinkles the uh, sprinkles the mercy seat with the blood of the bull, and then he takes some of the blood and he smears it on the horns of the altar. He goes back outside, gets blood from a goat. Which is now for the purification of the sins of the people. He comes in, does the same thing, sprinkles the blood on, on, the, uh, the, on, the, on the, the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, takes the blood, smears it onto the horns uh, of the altar. Once a year, the high priest of Israel would do this for a thousand years, they would do this, right? the book of Hebrews teaches us what all that meant. What it meant was Jesus as our high priest was coming before God with the blood of the sacrifice uh, and presenting it before God as atonement for our sins. This is a picture in Revelation. It's not just telling us really about it. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of it happening live in real time. Who's the high priest? Jesus is the high priest. So that tells us who the angel is. Jesus is presented as an angel several times in the book of Revelation, the angel of the presence. And so, because this is a vision of, of the Day of Atonement, we know that this angelic being that's going in before God with the incense of the saints is Jesus. That's how our prayers are before God. Jesus, as our mediator, our high priest, brings all of our prayers before God and fills the throne room with those prayers. He is the connection. And so our prayers are like a sweet-smelling incense before God, but there's some imagery that's missing in the Revelation passage. There's no bull. There's no goat. Why is that? Because a lot of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. Uh, And there's no there's no, picture of, there's, there's no picture of the high priest taking that blood and smearing it on the horns of the altar. Uh, it, and that picture of the horns of the altar is, can be confusing. A lot of commentators are confused about it. There's a lot of discussion. Why, why did the high priest smear the horns of the altar with, with the blood? Uh, And the reason is, again, Hebrews presents the fact that Jesus is our high priest, but he is also the perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus offered himself on the cross, Hebrews presents that as a picture of Jesus, that the cross is the altar. And that as his hands were outstretched, he was smearing blood on the altar of the cross, which was a picture or the fulfillment of what the high priest did by smearing that blood. On the horns of the altar. And so, this at the end here is a picture of Jesus in the heavenly realms, in the real tabernacle before God in reality, going in with our prayers, making them known before God. And taking the blood of his sacrifice and smearing them on the horns of the altar. What what he actually did on the cross. And that is why our prayers are acceptable to God. And that is why we are able to go before him. And that is why our sins are forgiven. Uh, And that's why we are delivered from the midst of this busy, noisy, blasphemous world. And the very last verse, end with this, is the last and terrible scene from the seal of judgment, from the judgment seals, or the sealed judgments. In verse 5, it says this, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, flashes, rumblings, flashes of lightning, an earthquake. It's theophany again, God's presence coming into the world, the earth beginning to dissolve and melt away in the presence of God. This is the ultimate extinction level event where the old world is uncreated and the new world is recreated uh, for us. And it's really a picture of the final judgment. And the book of Revelation could have ended right there with that, except as we see, we read it, it kind of stops right there. And the reason is there's a connection in the midst of this last section we see on stage left in the background, we see seven angels line up. And those seven angels are given trumpets, which signify the next series of judgments. And so the book is connected. And like all great movies that, that switch between scenes or, or show scenes from different angles or different camera angles, the John, the author, through the Holy Spirit, shows us the angels of the trumpet judgments lining up, which are going to show us Another scene, another, another version of the story. And as the angels line up getting ready to tell, tell that tale, God is breaking in the coals from the altar are thrown upon the earth. And as the dissolution begins, the scene goes to black in preparation for the next chapter. Which we will get to next time we are in the book of Revelation. The trumpet judgments. Amen. Okay, let's pray.